0: Let's all stand together at this time for our scripture reading today, Luke chapter 16. Very famous passage, very famous story, a message I simply call a testimony from hell. A testimony from hell. Luke 16 and 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried and said father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame may God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer you may be seated a testimony from hell by a person who was in hell. We got a testimony of heaven of sorts, about as close as we get, from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He described a person, a man, probably most commentaries say himself, who was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, he saw things, but unlike people who... Claimed claim to have made that trip today, uh, Paul didn't tell us what he saw. And again, unlike people who claim to have made that trip today, Paul heard some things, but he didn't tell us what he heard. So he was caught up into the third heaven. He saw things. He heard things. But it was not lawful for a man to utter, so he didn't tell us much about it. But we have this remarkable story about a man who died and went to hell. And this is going to be the subject of our message today, to consider this testimony about hell. And when I think about this subject, I'm reminded of a fable that I read once about a young mosquito. Remember, it's a fable. A young mosquito turned loose into the world for the first time. He circled around the neighborhood. He went from yard to yard. He visited a barbecue. He visited a birthday party. He went to a swimming get-together. When he turned, returned to his dad to give a report, and his dad asked him how it was, the young mosquito said, I had no idea I was so popular. Everywhere I went, they were clapping for me. <laughs> well, uh, preaching about hell is not popular. In fact, the whole subject of hell has become so unpopular in today's culture that uh, many, many uh, whole doctrinal systems are turning away from this. But our Lord Jesus Christ Himself set the tone on preaching about the subject of hell. You've probably heard it said that Jesus preached more about hell than any other Bible writer. Or teacher, you've probably heard that. It's true. But you may not have known that Jesus preached more about hell than all the other Bible writers put together. So that when we come to discussing the subject about hell, the subject of hell, overwhelmingly, we are quoting the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you believe in Jesus, then you must also believe in hell. He certainly did. He certainly did. Now, the text before us today comes at a time when Jesus was teaching his disciples. But there was another audience there, and that audience was clearly identified in verse 14 of this chapter. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. That is, they laughed at him. They made fun of his teachings. They were scoffing at what he had to say. And then the rest of the whole chapter, from verse 14 on... Jesus was addressing not his disciples, but he was addressing what he taught to the Pharisees. Uh, There's been a lot of questions and comments and controversy over the years over where the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus was a parable or not. Uh, uh, Some have have, uh, went so far as to describe it as a fictional account that Jesus completely made up of a bunch of events that couldn't happen. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, When Jesus told parables, uh, they were always, though maybe not about any specific person, they could have been about a person. Uh, A sower went forth to sow. Well, who was it? Well, it wasn't some magnificent account. It was a normal, everyday kind of thing. There was a father who had two sons. I mean, the story goes on and on. There's a woman who lost a coin, uh, I mean, over and over again. So the parables, the stories, the parables that Jesus told were not just completely fictional, not like the fable that I just told a few moments ago that was made up and could have never happened, of course. No, uh, Jesus' parables weren't like that. Um, It was a story. I'll approach it just like that. It does have form and structure, like a parable. Its application, like many of the other uh, stories that Jesus told, was obvious to his audience. Uh, They would have perceived very quickly that Jesus was talking about them. Uh, They did that on several of the other parables. They perceived that Jesus was addressing this to them. He was preaching to the Pharisees who were very, very well known for their love of wealth and for their display of wealth. And the story then sets the stage with a remarkable uh, group of contrast. Here was a story of a certain rich man. And there's no doubt that this story of this certain rich man was directed to the Pharisees and their love of wealth and the display of wealth. But what contrast? There's the rich man, but then there's a beggar. The rich man was not named, which would have been an unthinkable thing in that culture because the rich man like this would have been very important and noteworthy, but Jesus Doesn't even call his name, though he is the main point of the story. The star, if you will, of the story is the rich man left unnamed. Rich men were important people. But the beggar, by contrast, considered very unimportant, a nobody was actually given a name. And his name was Lazarus. We might try to make a jump to, in our minds to a story about a Lazarus who died and was raised from the dead after four days. But there's absolutely no indication in Scripture that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was a beggar. That, that was not the case. And so it's just a remarkable thing that Jesus gave us in the story. The rich man, had the unnamed rich man, had a fine dwelling place. But the beggar Lazarus was laid at his gate. Very interesting word that was used there. It actually means to cast or throw down with disregard for where it lands. It is somebody wasn't carefully placed. They were just thrown. Today we'd call it dumped much like a cat or a dog would be dumped in a subdivision in hopes that somebody might have pity on it and take it in. And that's a terrible thing that goes on in our world today. But in this case, it wasn't a cat or a dog. It was a human being, Lazarus, uh, who was cast, dumped, at the gate of this rich man. The rich man wore the finest of clothing. But Lazarus was covered in sores, ulcers, the mangy, mongrel dogs of this ancient world, not anybody's pets. The dogs that hung around major cities in Bible times were were not pets for the most part. These were wild animals. And by licking and picking at the sores on him, they were simply adding more to his suffering and indignity. It would have been considered even more of an indication than it was already present that Lazarus was under the curse of God, suffering because of some terrible lifestyle that he had, or some terrible sin that he had committed. Jesus would use this story then, as he did many, many times, to appeal to his audience specifically to this audience. Remember, the Pharisees were the dominant party in Israel, both political and religious, because those two things were combined, and they were by far the largest group, most powerful, most influential, although the Sadducees were gaining on them. But the Pharisees, well-known, And Jesus would address those groups over and over again. In Matthew chapter 23, he would be even more direct with them than he was in this story. When he said in verse 33, Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? See, he did it again. He looked at a group of people who were already condemned to hell exactly as he did to another Pharisee with whom he spoke intimately and personally under the cover of darkness a man named Nicodemus and Jesus said to him very plainly whosoever believeth not is already condemned and so he told him because he Did not have the new birth because he had not experienced the new birth. And he was already under the condemnation of hell. This was something Jesus said a lot. So our consideration of this parable will form then around three headings. And the first of which is the religion. The religion itself because that's going to play very prominently in the story. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. There's their religion. But God knows your hearts for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So he speaks directly to what is called Pharisaic Judaism and those teachings of the Pharisees were very dominant, very deeply entrenched into the minds of people. First their their ideas were built around the idea that money and wealth are God's blessings, which are is true by the way, but "...to them uh, to have money and wealth then proved that the recipient of those blessings was righteous in God's sight and therefore was certain of heaven." A rich man had the resources and the ability to do more in the service of God. They could give more. Uh, They were certain then, even more certain of heaven, uh, because they could do more and do greater works." When Jesus told his disciples that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven, the disciples were blown away by that because that contradicted everything they had been taught, that a rich man had an inside track, that a rich man was blessed in favor of God, that a rich man, by his blessings, was certain, certain to go to heaven when he died. There was more to it than just wealth. It was also that system of works as a result of the law that was a perversion of the law of Moses and the clear truth of Scripture. God had revealed it all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 when he said that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Righteousness. So that all the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way back to our father Abraham they talk so much about, the Bible tells us very clearly that Abraham was justified, that is, he was right with God by faith. By faith. Not by the works of the law. And if you want to learn more about that, just read the book of Galatians, for example. uh, A little bit maybe in Romans and a few other passages. It's basically all over the New Testament. And it was all over the Old Testament too. The just shall live by faith. That's all the way back in the book of Habakkuk. And so their understanding of this works-based of uh, 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 righteousness, uh, based on the, the works that they did, the good things that they did, and by the keeping of the law, uh, was simply a perversion of the law. It was not right. And so not only was their belief that the rich men had an inside track to heaven, but also their entire system of works which impressed other people, looked good on the outside. But Jesus said, it's an abomination to God. They could add in, of course, their relationship to Abraham, and they did. Uh, John the Baptist confronted them about that in the same passage uh, where he called them a brood of vipers too, by the way. And he challenged them, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And so it was not their relationship with Abraham that would get them to heaven. It was not their wealth. It was not their works. God made a covenant with Abraham. That their relationship with him, even though they had the sign of the covenant of Abraham, which was circumcision, none of these things would make them certain of heaven. And here in this passage, Jesus passed an eternal verdict on their religion of wealth and works. When he said in verse 22, It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. An eternal verdict on their religion of wealth and works, on their idea of their relationship with God because of the sign of circumcision, of the idea that because they were the children of Abraham, they were certain of heaven. All of that is wrapped up in verse 23 in hell. He lifted up his eyes. What a contrast then with Lazarus. And remember, I say again, Lazarus was not the star of this story. And you'll note that Lazarus never says anything in it, not a word. As far as Lazarus is concerned, his entire part of the story, his entire message is in verse 22 where the Bible says that he died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom now the place that he was going to was referred to by Jesus as paradise in Luke 23 when he spoke to another Jew who was also being crucified and therefore dying under the curse of God a crucified thief crucified by the Romans with Jesus and yet Jesus would say to him because he believed by the way today you'll be with me In paradise, in paradise. That's the place that we were talking about. Abraham's bosom did not mean that Lazarus would take up residence inside Abraham's chest. Uh, It was an expression that they used that simply meant that he would be very close to Abraham. You remember at the Last Supper, the Bible says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, was leaning on his bosom, on his chest. Uh, that was meant that he was closest to Jesus. He was closely associated with him. He was the closest of all in a position of high honor. So not only was this uh, a beggar, Lazarus, carried into paradise, but he ends up sitting at the highest seat of the highest table. He was leaning on Abraham's chest in Abraham's bosom. What a high position of honor. This was an unthinkable truth to Jesus' audience that this beggar could go directly from the gate covered with sores and licked by dogs to not only being in paradise, but being in that high position of honor close to Abraham and carried there by angels. What a contrast with the rich man who died and was buried, no doubt, with great fanfare that was associated with such a production. We don't know exactly how he ended up then in hell, but we can see very clearly that his death and burial were not the end because the Bible says that he lifted up his eyes. That's the way of saying he awoke. And just as the Bible would tell us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believers, so that we can confidently say when a person's eyes closes in death who is a believer in Christ, at that very instant then they are with the Lord. We can also confidently say that when this rich man's eyes closed in death, he was at that moment then in hell and he lifted up his eyes in hell in torments. And the fact that he was Jewish, the fact that he was a child of Abraham, was a part of the Jewish nation, had been circumcised the eighth day of his life to take the seal of the Abrahamic covenant, the fact that he had lived all of his life under the power of the law with all of its rules and religion and ritual for all of his wealth and all of his works, this rich Jewish man lifted up his eyes in hell and torment. Both of these two things were un thinkable to his audience if we miss that we miss the import of the whole story this was a shocking thing that jesus was preaching to this group of pharisees and it was all about their religion and their religion was found to be eternally insufficient. That's the religion. Then the Bible highlights the requests. Verse 24, And he, that's the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, there, there's that expression that they would have used so often, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Uh, Then he goes on, verse 27, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, calls him Father Abraham again, uh, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest thou they also come into this place of torment. Now we'll take these in order. First Lazarus had once been cast at this man's gates to beg for crumbs. There's no indication that he got any. In fact, to give help as a Pharisee to someone who was so obviously under the judgment of God would have been unthinkable. And that was very well put on display in Jesus's parable. Another story of the good Samaritan and the man, a Jew who had fallen among thieves and they'd taken everything and he was left there laying on the side of the road. You see, they would have, and, and all of those religious people passing by, nobody would help him. Why? Because they would have considered that person to have been under the judgment of God. And uh, therefore, if they were trying to help him or give him any aid or comfort, uh, they would be going against the purposes of God. God wanted them to we're going to leave him judge. That was their plan. So it would have not fit in with his theology at all, the rich man, to have helped Lazarus. And he didn't. We can only imagine the fires of torment this man was experiencing. Now what happened to his body? His body was buried. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with his disembodied spirit. And it is that spirit that is tormented. Yet he feels. He remembers he feels the pain of the fires and the heat causing such a thirst that even a drop of water on his tongue. So he felt like he had a tongue. He, I, I, I can't explain all this. Jesus didn't explain it to us. He just gives it to us as a matter of fact. And he, Even a drop of water on his tongue sounded heavenly. Oh, just a drop. These details are hard for us to understand. And Jesus makes no explanation. This is the spirit of a man. It's not a body, yet somehow hell is designed so as to provide spiritual torment. That is very real. Remember, everything in the universe that exists was made by Jesus Christ. And that includes hell. He was a designer of it. He was the maker of it. He could certainly speak authoritatively about it, but he didn't give us a lot of explanation. He just says it very matter of fact. This is what it is. It is designed so as to provide spiritual torment that is very real, but the place... Uh, we call hell is not the eternal abode of those who deny Christ and die in that denial because the Bible says that there'll come a day that death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. That is, so that is going to be a place of physical torment. But hell as, as we know it today and as it's presented in this text was a place of spiritual torment so that the flames could burn a soul and The soul, the spirit, could still feel sensations, obviously, and certainly suffer torment. Then comes the second request, because the first one was denied. Um, The second request, we'll talk about that in a moment. The second request is especially heart-rending, because this formerly rich man, who now has absolutely nothing, formerly rich man, Thinks of his father's house and his five brothers who were still alive. What a home this was. With one brother in hell and five brothers on the road to hell. This is not a failed home full of abuse and addiction. Sending off generations of people living in rebellion against God. This is not that kind of home. Before men, this was an impressive family. Impressive. With their religion, their outward appearances, their opulence, their wealth, their community service, everything about their heritage and history would exude righteousness and elicit admiration. And yet one of the brothers was already in hell and five more were on the road there. See, Jesus had already told him in verse 15, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And so we have these two requests put before us, highlighted as they are in Scripture. And I've tried to pass them along to you just as they are given to us two requests. First, for something to give him comfort, though it was just a drop of water. And second, Concern for his brothers left behind. Then see the rejection. The religion, the request, but the rejections. But Abraham said, Son. He called him Father, Abraham. Abraham responded and said, Son. You say, How was that true? Well, it was true physically, yes. Paul would write long later, I don't have time to develop this, but I'll just tell you, Paul would write many years after this and tell us that they are not all uh, Abraham's seed who are of Abraham. Uh, That Abraham had a spiritual as well as a physical progeny. And it was only those who followed him in faith. That became the true seed of Abraham. So, uh, uh, But yes, Abraham could acknowledge that. That is, he was his offspring in that sense. He was uh, a part of that covenant people because uh, he was a child of Abraham. So he called Abraham father. Abraham called him son. And he said, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Nor can those from there pass to us. We again are not given any, any explanation as to why this rich man was allowed to see Lazarus. In paradise in Abraham's bosom. Why he was allowed to talk to Abraham. Uh, It it certainly made a very good talking point for Jesus. And his dealings with these Pharisees. And so uh, I have no reason to doubt that it happened. And it was a demonstration that everything, listen to me today, everything of a religious nature that this man had believed all of his life was wrong. And all it took was a look, one look, and there was Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Leaning upon Abraham in the place of paradise while he was in torment. And suddenly, with one look, he knew everything he had believed was wrong. What a time to find it out. Wow. He found out that a rich man may not be right with God at all. And a man who is impoverished and suffering may be right with God in going straight to heaven when he dies Lazarus had begged for food from this rich man that he never received well now the rich man was begging that Lazarus would be sent to come and give him some comfort but the request was denied there's a reference made to a great gulf that simply means it's an impassable barrier which would not allow the rich man to come to paradise to a place of comfort. And it's a good time for us to remember that once a person lands in hell, there is no reprieve. No matter how many prayers are prayed for him, no matter how much money is given for him, there is no reprieve. There's a great goal fixed, and if you want out, you can't get out. That's what the testimony from hell tells us. And even if Lazarus was somehow allowed, and we don't know that he was, but certainly Abraham was, but even if Lazarus was somehow to, allowed, uh, to be allowed to see the suffering and would then have a desire to go there and somehow try to alleviate that suffering, that, that was not going to be permitted. If, if such a thing could even happen or would have happened, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. Lazarus could not help him. Abraham could not help him because he was beyond help and beyond hope. Then comes the second request, and the second request was to send Lazarus back to witness to his five brothers headed to the same place of torment. And maybe it's just because of the season of year, that is. I've tried to picture this in my mind exactly what that might have looked like. I mean, would would God have simply, if, if he would have allowed the request, would it have been a, a case maybe where he reanimated the body of Lazarus and there he goes back dripping and oozing sores and now dead all that time and stinking and smelling, and kind of a zombie looking kind of a fella. I mean, uh, I don't know if it would have played out that way. Maybe he could have sent him back as a resurrected person, uh, uh, a totally resurrected body and go back to witness it to him. Either way, it would certainly capture some attention, you would think. But for the second time in this passage then, Jesus brings up the law and the prophets This time through Abraham, verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And let's just remind ourselves this morning that there was a Lazarus who did rise from the dead, and they tried to kill him again. And when Jesus rose from the dead, they still denied him. It's often been pointed out that this lost man, though in hell, had more compassion for the lost that were still alive than a lot of Christians do today. And all I can say to that is, ouch. Ouch. Seeing Lazarus in whatever form he might have assumed, had God sent him back, would not have done anything for those men on the road to hell. I can't explain all of the reason for that, except I can tell you what the Bible says. And that's Romans 10, 17 says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 says, After that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It is the preaching of the gospel, as Paul says, that is the power of God unto salvation. And some sensational miracle, even something so sensational as sending Lazarus back from the dead, would not have had any effect On a people who had rejected the truth of the gospel. Who had rebelled against it. And who had embraced this false religion. What they needed to do was listen to Moses and the prophets. There was plenty in there to show them how to be saved. And it would have. But it didn't. And so we see put before us today then the religion, the requests, and the rejections that is the essence of this testimony from hell. Uh, What can we make of this? We can certainly see how it applied to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Though as far as we can tell from reading the passage, it had no effect on them other than probably to aggravate him even further. Jesus was addressing the most religious group of Judaism. And as he did over and over and over again, he warned them that their religious beliefs were wrong and their only hope was to repent of their sins and turn to him in faith to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the condemnation of hell that was already upon them. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he that believeth not is already condemned because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For all their religion and apparent righteousness, they were headed straight to hell. Jesus knew it. He knew all about it. He knew it authoritatively. There was no question about it in his mind. He didn't spend a lot of time explaining it. He simply presented it matter-of-factly. He had made it. He made it for a reason because men chose sin. They turned from God. And as a result, then hell came to be. And if somebody wanted to say, well, the the hell was created for the devil, that's true, too. (laughs) It's true, too. And for the same reason, because they had rebelled against God. And so hell is a place that we could say was, it was put in position, made for a purpose. It was made for a purpose of, uh, for, to provide a place for all of those who chose to live their life without God. And this is what life without God really looks like. And though you might uh, put it all around with all the trappings of wealth and all the trappings of work and surround yourself and wrap yourself up in the fine robes of religious expression, at the end of the day, this is what it looks like. This is what life without God is. It is spiritual torment. It is a place of darkness. It is a place where there is no hope and no help and no relief. So that people experience for all eternity what they chose. And they chose to live the life without God. Now, the Jewish people are certainly on the minds of the world these days. We have witnessed the unspeakable horror perpetrated on them by Palestinian terrorists. And I cannot... Uh, speak strongly enough about how horrible it was that uh, 1,100 Israelis, many of them citizens holding dual citizens and citizens of other countries, including ours, that 1,100 Israelis, Jewish people, died. Died terribly. As bad as that is, that's not the worst. There's something worse than death. And the Bible says it very clearly. It is appointed a man once to die, and after this, after this, after this, the judgment. And not only with those people, but people all over this planet. Because thousands, millions die every day. However many the number is. And untold numbers, multitudes, die every day. Day in and day out. All over this country. All over this world. It is a tragedy every time anybody dies. But the worst tragedy of all is to lift up their eyes in hell, without hope, without help, facing an eternity without God. Jesus never spent a minute explaining why hell exists. He did not spend a minute answering all of our objections to it. He knew it was there. He knows why it was there. He created it himself, and he gives us, and he gave them. The same message. John 5.39 puts it this way. You search the scriptures. For in them you, there's the scriptures again. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Life. You see it was not as so many want us to believe today that these people could not come but that they would not. There's a big difference between those two words. Big difference between could not and would not. They searched the scriptures and they thought that those scriptures guaranteed them eternal life and I've already explained how they made that connection. But what a tragedy. To lift up his eyes in hell and find out that everything he had believed, so sincerely, so strongly, all of his works, all of his efforts, all of his giving, everything that he had done, everything he had believed was all wrong and all went for nothing. And it could not be changed. Testimony from hell. Well, what's this mean to us? <laughs> well, first of all, it means that I sincerely hope that you have made your calling and election sure. <laughs> that you—that's what Simon Peter said, by the way. That you know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received Him as your Savior. And if you have, then the terrors of hell, no matter how horrible they may be, they have no fear for you. Because Jesus Christ took your judgment and he took that on Calvary. It was buried then in the grave along with your sins so that you were raised up again to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. That is a testimony of every born-again, blood-bought child of God. And I hope it's yours today. If it's not, don't go out of here today with uncertainty. You see, Jesus would talk to these people, and he'd talk to them, you know. You just just got to understand death is around everywhere. Bad things happen. He talked about a bunch of people that a tower fell on. Can you imagine? Go to a city. that's there seeing all the sights, having a good day, minding your own business. All of a sudden, you hear something, and you look up, splat, you're dead. A tower fell. Towers fall. And Jesus asked an important question. He said, do you think those men that the the tower fell on over there and just killed them dead on the spot, do you think they were worse than everybody else? You think that was what was wrong? Well, of course they did. That was their thinking. But Jesus said, no, no. No. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Except you repent. Remember I said Jesus talked more about this than all the other Bible writers combined. Because everywhere he went, he was looking eyeball to eyeball with people who were headed to this awful place and sometimes he thundered at him, oh brood of vipers, flee from the wrath to come sometimes he thundered sometimes he pleaded and ultimately he went out and died and yes the bible says he tasted death for every man So that that statement that he made could be true. You would not come unto me that you might have life. On which side of the cross do you stand today? Let's stand together please.